Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. It's page 310 on the, or in the Red Pew Bibles. Last Sunday, we introduced this new series, which is going to focus on the second half of David's life. We looked at the first half back in 2013, 2014. So this, if you like, is part two or season two. And as we reconnected with David's story last week in 2 Samuel 6, we, we highlighted two key lessons. The first is, and we've kind of been singing about that and been reminded of this this evening, that, that God is holy. And to forget that or to take that lightly is like playing with fire. It, it's dangerous to take the holiness of God lightly as David and others, particularly one individual disturbingly discovered. And therefore, what we said last week is that we, we've got to, to foster and maintain a sense of awe and wonder. And we've got to express that then in obedience to God's Word. The second lesson that we emphasized, based on, on David's rather exuberant dancing and celebrating before the ark of the Lord, which was that symbol of God's divine presence, is that worship is primarily for, for an audience of one. And therefore, what we said last week is we've, we've therefore got to be careful about critiquing or judging the worship of others, even if it winds us up, as David's did to Michael, his unimpressed wife. That doesn't mean, as we said last week, anything goes or that we ignore each other or dismiss the impact of our actions on those around us, but it does remind us that, that our worship and our expression of our worship is ultimately, and this was a key phrase, it's ultimately before the Lord. It's for His eyes only. It's for God's pleasure and glory. And so tonight we're going to pick up from where we left off, but before I read the, the opening three verses of 2 Samuel 7. Let me say something again just about this title, the series title. We, we've called part two of David's life Talking the Talk because as we're about to discover during these next couple of months, after David became king, he, he talked a good game, but he didn't always follow the talk up with good practice. He talked the talk, but didn't always walk the talk. There's also a positive side, we said last week, to this title, because although that kind of sounds like a negative reason for having this title, there is a positive spin on it, because even though David did get it wrong, David did mess up a number of times, he kept coming back and talking to God. And so talking the talk, taking our failures and our feelings to God in prayer and in dialogue is a really healthy practice which is worth embracing and modeling. So, okay, let's read the opening three verses of 2 Samuel 7. Keep your seats at the moment. It says this, After the king, that's David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And so what you have here 
at the beginning of chapter 7 is David in a really good place. A really, really good place. He settled in his palace. And for someone who spent so much of his life as a fugitive, so much of his life spent on the run, this must have been great to be settled in a palace. Plus, it says, he's at rest from all his enemies. Plus, after one failed attempt, the ark, this symbol of God's divine presence, is now with him in his city. And so, at the beginning of chapter 7, all seems well, although something's bothering him. Something's niggling at him. But before we look at what that was, we are introduced in this, those opening few verses for the very first time in David's story to Nathan the prophet, David's go-to spiritual advisor, who was going to be with David for the rest of his life. And as many of us know, Nathan will play a key role in David's journey, particularly during one horrendous spell in David's life. But that's for further down the line. By the way, really interesting thing. Where Nathan came from and how he was chosen or appointed is, is anybody's guess. But he's here now, and that's all that matters. So David discusses with his go-to spiritual advisor what it is that's bothering him, what's niggling at him. And so it seems that as he sits in his palace, enjoying the smell of the new woodwork in his house of cedar. He feels bad. He feels uneasy. He feels guilty. We're not sure which. text doesn't tell us. But he feels whatever he feels about the fact that while he's based in these impressive surroundings, the ark of God remains under canvas. It's in a tent. And David doesn't get a chance to finish what everybody seems he, he's going to say next. It, everybody kind of expects, as you read that, that what he's going to say next is, so hang on a minute, let's build something. But before he says anything further, Nathan injects, interrupts, replies, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're thinking, David, just go for it. Do it. And do you know what? The Lord is with you. Now, although that last phrase, and if you were here last week, you'll know this, that last phrase is true. It's fair enough. We already know that from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10, where God has promised David that he will be with him. But the rest of Nathan's somewhat knee-jerk reaction is none too clever. It's not right. Which, if nothing else, is another example of Scripture not editing out and not afraid to include the not-so-impressive parts of people's lives, even key prophets. They got it wrong sometimes. Nathan got this wrong. Nathan got ahead of himself. And more worryingly, he got ahead of God. And so Nathan, the prophet, needs to be brought back in line. And therefore, after a nighttime conversation with God, Nathan receives a message for David that changes the goalposts 
from, okay, David, just do it. Whatever you're thinking, just do it. But God's message to Nathan, which is to be delivered to David, says, no, no. It's not just go for it. It's just let the Lord do it. And that is a huge shift. And we'll look at the kind of delivery of that message and the specifics in a moment. But before we move on, there is, I feel, a key lesson here for us. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but this has been my experience. Sometimes we can get ahead of ourselves. Or rather, we get ahead of God. We, we jump at something. We, we rush into something. We plow on and we make decisions and choices off our own bat without reference to our God, to our Heavenly Father. Now, many of the things that we're thinking about doing or planning or organizing seem like a good idea, seem okay, maybe even seem worthy. I mean, after all, David's idea sounded okay. And yet, if we neglect to consult God, if we forget to take our plans and our ideas and our schemes and our thoughts to God in prayer, then we're in danger, like Nathan, like David, of making a mistake, of making a poor choice, a potentially misguided decision. Look at verses 4 and 5. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. And then listen to this. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? It's a loaded question. Everyone knows the answer. The answer is no. No. And there is a sense here in which David and Nathan are very quickly and very directly put in their place. You see, their plans are just that, theirs. They don't correspond with God's plans, which are bigger and better. Eugene Peterson, writing about this moment and this incident, puts it like this, but there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. That's what Nathan realized that night. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. David and Nathan's thinking and perspective and plans and scheme, they all needed to be realigned. For their own good, yes, but also for God's glory. And therefore, if any of us, individually or corporately, are facing an important decision, if anyone is here facing a critical choice, if you're formulating ideas and plans, if you're considering a change of direction, whatever you do, do not forget to consult. Do not forget to refer. Do not run ahead of yourself. Do not run ahead of God, but take time to reflect. Which in many ways was exactly what our 40 days of prayer was all about. Where we as a church 
got to a point of saying, right, rather than kind of run ahead, rush into something, let's pause and let's spend time and listen and attempt to discern. I'm not suggesting for every decision you face, you should spend 40 days in prayer, but at least take a night. <laughs> at least take time to pray. God spoke to Nathan, who then spoke to David. And let's stand together and listen to what God's revelation via Nathan to David actually was. We're starting at verse 4, and we'll go down to verse 17. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. To grab a seat. This... Uh, and, and some of you will know this. This, this has been described as, as a really crucial Old Testament text because it contains what is known as the Davidic covenant. The co a covenant is principally a, a kind of agreement between two parties. And so we've got the, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. And here in 2 Samuel 7, we have a or we have the covenant with David, where God makes several unconditional key promises to David via Nathan regarding, amongst other things, who will succeed him as king. Not only in the short term, but maybe more interestingly in the long term, because in this revelation, God uses the language of eternity. I will establish his throne and his kingdom, and then here's the bit, forever. In other words, someone from your flesh and blood, someone from the lineage of David will come and establish an everlasting throne and kingdom. 
And this for many people, and some of you are ahead of me, and some of you know this, but this for many people is a direct and an explicit reference to Jesus, the son of David, as Matthew, whenever he is writing his gospel, calls him. And so it's not hard to see how this Davidic covenant and these verses are kind of seen as having an essentially messianic flavor to them because they point to Jesus. As we kind of are able, with along with many others, to read this text alongside the rest of Scripture. But if you like, that is us zooming out of this particular story. And what I want to do is zoom back in, but I did want to make that point. But let's zoom back in, because as Nathan speaks to David, what he does in verses 5 and 7, have a look at this. He rehearses history. This is what God does. He rehearses history to make the point, listen, David, I have never been tied down. God is a pilgrim God of a pilgrim people. He never once, he says, asked anyone, any of David's predecessors, to build him a house that might contain him, that might detain him or contain him. God chose to move, he says, in a tent or in a tabernacle. So why, why, David, should you think you can now restrict me? And without manipulating the text too much, this, this is another truth worth remembering. God cannot be controlled. God cannot be moderated, cannot be tamed, cannot be pinned down, cannot be hemmed in, cannot be dictated to. And the moment anyone thinks otherwise is the point at which they lose perspective. It's the point at which they lose an understanding of the greatness, the bigness, the vastness, the majesty, the holiness, the sovereignty of God. The moment anyone thinks, well, I can confine God. God is essentially and infinitely dynamic. He is uncontainable, as we were thinking about this morning. He's uncontainable, as we sometimes sing. God, by definition, is free, and therefore, he cannot be boxed. He cannot be domesticated. He cannot be constrained by human constructs or categories, despite how hard some people might try. Attempting to limit God is a futile task and endeavor. God is in control. God calls the shots. Now, as it turns out, a house will indeed be built, but David will not be the one building it. And as God keeps speaking into David's life and into David's situation via Nathan, the overall message is dominated by a kind of recital, a rehearsal of what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. And if you scan your eyes over those verses again, you can't help but notice the number of times I have or I will appear. So for example, I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies. I will provide. I will give you rest. I will establish the throne. And as one writer has commented, God is the first person subject of 23 verbs in this message. And these verbs carry the action. David, full of what he is going to do for God, is now subjected to a comprehensive rehearsal of what God has done, is doing, and will do for and in David. And so David discovers in kind of stunning technicolor and via crystal clear revelation that it's all about God. 
It's all about what God has accomplished. It's all about what God is accomplishing. It's all about what God will accomplish. And that David's kingdom is secured, not by what he will do, not by his efforts, not by his plans, even though they may sound great, or because he somehow even deserves it, but ultimately and primarily as a result of the undeserved favor and merit of God. All of this, David, all of this is a divine gift. And so what we discover here is that this has got grace written all over it. Nathan's speech confirms, predicts, promises what God in grace has done, is doing, will do. Never the other way round. And so Nathan finishes speaking to David, realigns his thinking, sorts out his perspective, And then we read that David responds. And how he responds from verse 18 is brilliant. It's appropriate, it's apt, it's fitting, and it's challenging. Because David responds in prayer and praise. And again, what you have here, and I know know I'm maybe pointing out the obvious, but here is another great lesson to embrace that whenever you are confronted, whenever you are reminded of the grace and the greatness of our dynamic God, whenever your vision of God is expanded, whenever your vision and understanding of God is realigned, when it's revamped, then the only appropriate response is to bow, bow your head and raise your voice. And in verse 18, we read that David goes in And he sits before the ark. And so obviously the inn refers to the tent. And so David makes his way into the tent. And he just sits before the presence of God. And David has been corrected. And David takes it on the chin. David has the capacity, it would seem, to receive correction and to receive it in all humility, not for the last time. And again, here's another lesson to grasp, that when we are challenged by others, trusted, recognized, godly people, Nathan-like individuals, we should be willing to listen to them, willing to take on board their correction and then willing to respond with humility before God. And David does exactly this. And look at his prayer again, verse 18, right through to 22. Just scan your eyes over that prayer. Because what you find is David here immediately is regaining perspective, and he repositions himself. Look at how he starts this prayer. Who am I, sovereign Lord? Who am I? I'm here now. You're here. You're in control, 
not me. You dictate, you determine, not me. And he recognizes that he is where he is because of God. What has happened is happening and will happen is now down to God. You have brought me this far, God. You have spoken about the future. You have done this great thing. You have made it known. And so what you find here, David sitting in the presence of God, acknowledging, giving thanks for the grace of God. And in addition, notice the language he uses regarding himself. Scan your eyes down the prayer again. Don't miss how David refers to himself here. Because this one word, one term reveals that David's got it. This shows and proves he realizes that what is going on and where he stands is in relation to God and the plans of God. David doesn't describe himself as a king. Instead, he repeatedly uses the term and title servant. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, verse 25, twice in 27, once in 28, twice in 29, nine times. As David prays, he says, I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'm your servant. David is back in a good place. He sees himself as he really is in God's eyes. He accepts his weaknesses and his relative insignificance. David is struck with awe and wonder that God would choose to use him. And so he's no longer puffed up with power as the king of Israel, but instead he's humbled by an awareness that he's only God's servant. And in that place of humility, and in that place of clear thinking and right perspective, as David recognizes, I am only great. I am only where I am because of the grace of God and by the grace of God and nothing else. David then sings. He praises God. Verse 22, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And this is the only response. And in a moment, I'm going to invite us to adopt a similar position and attitude. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage us in a moment to sit before God like David in silence and pray. And reflect for a moment on who we are and who God is. I want us as John encouraged us to be earlier, I want us to be open and honest before God regarding where we're at this evening and be willing to accept the need for correction if necessary. And then after a time of silent, personal prayer, I want us to rise to our feet and sing. I want us to echo the words of David about the greatness of God. And we're going to sing the splendor of our King. How great is our God. And then it goes into then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. And I kinda, I'm going to encourage you to sing it like you've never sung it before. But just before we do that, let me make one other comment. David concludes, you'll notice his prayer with a petition or petitions. He asks God to keep his promise. 
This covenant, this agreement, he says to God, God, please keep it. Please bless me, God. And again, there's a principle here worth noting that when it comes to prayer, hear this, praise precedes petition. Before we ask for anything and bring our request to God, take time to recognize and affirm who God is. Begin by acknowledging his character, his greatness, his authority. And then once you're in that place, once you've recognized who it is we stand before, we sit before, we kneel before, we bow before, we lie before, once we have recognized who God is and affirmed who God is, then present your requests. David started off this chapter on the wrong foot. Nathan didn't exactly help at the start. But thanks to God's grace and goodness, thanks to David's willingness to listen and learn, he's back on a more level footing for now. And so the story continues in a couple of weeks. But in light of what we've looked at, let me give you two things to avoid and two things to do as you walk out of here tonight. Here's a couple of do's and don'ts. Don't rush ahead of God. Refer. Consult. Whatever it is, you're planning, organizing, choosing to do. Job, relationship, future, whatever. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get ahead of God. And don't restrict. Don't box. Don't confine. Don't dictate to God. But do remember what God has done. Remember grace. Remember God's undeserved favor to you. If you want an example, that's what we've been doing this evening. And remember who we are, humble servants. And then do respond in prayer and praise. There is no one like him. God is great. So let me invite you to sit in silence before God, recognizing who he is, Recognizing who you are. And recognizing that each of us is only here. And only where we are by the grace of God.